0: Before I actually get to the, uh, my sermon, I'm uh, just ad-libbing this. I just thought of it right now, but it's important to, that everyone understand. Everything I'm about to say here uh, would not be able to apply to you today if you're not a member of a local church, a, a, a legitimate, formal member, baptized member of a local church. It, just kind of watch out for yourself as you go through this text, as we preach through it, um, There is no way that we can possibly enforce any kind of church discipline upon you, which is for your good, uh, if you're not actually a member of a local church. So I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're not, um, be thinking about that, be praying about it. Uh, If not this local church, then some other local church. But you need to be involved in an assembly where people recognize that your profession of faith is valid, your baptism is valid, that you are, in fact, walking with Jesus Christ. Uh, we can't be lone rangers on this. God has created the church for our mutual benefit. So talk to me, talk to Pastor Alex if you were thinking of joining here, but you need to be a member of some church. That's for free. All right. <laughs> Have you considered, ever considered just how many New Testament letters were written by the Lord's Apostles to churches that were in the midst of battling false teaching and rampant sin almost all of them hebrews galatians first and second corinthians first and second timothy titus first and second thessalonians jude first and second peter the letters of john revelation all those letters were occasioned by serious theological error and sinful practice in the church at the time of their composition And with the exception of the book of Revelation, which was probably written in the 90s, uh, all were written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus rising from the grave, and for the most part, less than a decade after each church was planted. That's not long at all, is it? 1 Corinthians was written only five years after the Apostle Paul planted the church and just look at how far they've strayed from living out the entailments of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But God is sovereign overall, and in accordance with his eternal purposes, because those early local churches were falling into error, they were falling into sinful practices, and because the Lord's apostles were responding to that that error with the truth of the gospel in letters, which God inspired and preserved for the church, We then stand in line as the beneficiaries. For 2,000 years, the Church of Christ has been instructed by their negative example and the apostles' teaching. Corinth is a church in which an incestuous sexual relationship is presently occurring between a member of the church and his unbelieving stepmother. Everyone in the church knows about it. This isn't a secret sin. The whole church knows about it, but the church has done nothing to address the issue. Far from it. In fact, the church is condoning the situation with no overt sign of concern. Instead of being consumed with grief and disciplining the man out of their Christian fellowship, which is what God requires of them, we'll see this, the Corinthian church instead, they're they're smug. They're smug in their enlightened tolerance. That they're actually puffed up with pride, that they have the freedom to act this way. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of ground today. Some of this text is quite complex, it's controversial, to say the least. uh, But I don't want us to get lost in the forest. So, we need something to guide us, we need a pole star. Why is all this teaching about sexual purity and church discipline and expelling immoral members and handing them over to Satan, the purity of the church at the level of her membership, why is this a big deal? Why is this an important text for this church, for every church, to believe and to practice? So here's our poll star, here's our directing principle, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16. Obviously, in the flow of the book, this comes before our text today. 1 Corinthians 3.16. So think of John 3.16. Very easy to memorize. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you, together, are that temple. Those two verses tell us what's at stake in Corinth isn't simply a low view of sin. Rather, it's the church itself. That's what's at stake, the church itself. The church that lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. The church is the gospel made visible. And what God has accomplished in the death and the resurrection of his son for sin has been put on glorious public display in the church, in a body of people called by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to glorify him together by serving him in this world. We are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in our midst, and his church is pure. There is no contamination of unrepentant sin in the temple of God where God's spirit dwells. And so the question for the Corinthian church is, will she believe and obey the gospel with all of its ethical entailments? even in the realm of sexuality? Or will the church tolerate sin and thereby destroy God's temple? And we're faced with the same question, aren't we? As is every church around the world. This is the way it's always been. It's the way it always will be until Jesus returns. Will we believe and obey Paul's gospel with all its ethical implications even in the realm of sexuality? Or will we tolerate sin, New City, and thereby destroy God's temple? Those are the stakes. So look at your bulletins. Point one, a judgment pronounced, an apostolic judgment being pronounced, and we can hear Paul's horrified, saddened incredulity. Remember, these are people that he's lived with for a year and a half. He planted this church a mere five years before. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So, this sexual immorality isn't a a one-night stand by one of the members, followed by broken-hearted repentance. That would have resulted in a very different response from the Apostle Paul. There is no repentance in this case. There is no fleeing from this immorality. Now, notice that this is the first evil addressed in the chapter, and that it's an individual evil. A solitary member of the Corinthian church is in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. But to Paul's thinking, the church's reaction to this incestuous affair is as bad or worse than the affair itself. That's how the rest of the chapter plays out. Instead of grieving over the sin in their midst, the Corinthian church is actually smug about their enlightened tolerance as Christians, even though the pagan world around them is howling with outrage, as we see in verse 2. Roman incest laws strictly prohibited intimate relations between relatives to the third degree, as well as between a stepson and stepmother, and between a stepdaughter and stepfather. The punishment in Roman culture was losing property, being exiled to an island... ...and losing social status. Now, why the Corinthians are responding this way... ...why the Corinthian church is responding this way to this man's sin... ...is difficult to reconstruct. But they're thinking something like this. All things are lawful for us. In Jesus, through whom we've received the Holy Spirit... We have the right to do anything. There are no ethical consequences. The Spirit has lifted us above the merely earthly, above the merely fleshy. So what Paul calls sexual immorality, it's of no consequence to spiritual people like us. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Our bodies are made for sex. There's a distance between deeds done in the physical body And the spiritual level of life that we've attained to, it's something like that. It's difficult to reconstruct. Most commentators think there's a definite material-slash-spiritual dualism at work in their thinking. You could call it Neoplatonism. Also, this unswerving confidence in their own spirituality is tied to a brand of overrealized eschatology. We talked about that last week. Over-realized eschatology that assumes that all or most of the blessings of the age to come in the new heavens and new earth are already being experienced in their fullness in the here and now. So again, we looked at that last week. But for my money, I think what we're seeing here is sort of a cross between Neoplatonism and an over-realized eschatology. Now, Paul waits until chapter 6 to deal with the theology behind sexual immorality and why it's wrong. Just just throw that out there, brother, sister. Why is there such a thing as sexual immorality? What makes it wrong? Good thing to maybe ponder over the next week. We'll look at that next week, though. But a very important question, particularly in our culture. Why, Why is sex reserved? for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Why is that? Apart from just God decrees it. The main thing that I want us to see here is that there is sexual sin in the Corinthian church and of a sort that even pagans are ashamed to indulge in. And instead of being grieved, instead of exhibiting just a deep anguish of soul, you know, that, that mourning that comes with true repentance of sin. This local assembly of Christians is smug about their enlightened tolerance of this man's sin. Their neoplatonism, their overrealized eschatology has blinded them to the fallen brother's true condition and to their own. Look at verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning And have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. And here we see the shift. It happens very early on. It's a shift from the individual sin. I mean, Paul deals with the individual sin for one verse. To the corporate sin of the entire church. Paul's obviously repulsed by the man's sin, but from here on, the argument is addressed almost entirely to the church and its arrogance. The Corinthian church must remove this man from their membership. They must put this man outside the believing community, and Paul repeats that command four times. He's emphatic. This is a time for decisive action. And in verses 3 to 4, Paul asserts his authority to pronounce judgment on the situation. And in so doing, he reflects the power and the authority of Jesus Christ himself. He is the Lord's apostle. After all, look at verse 3. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. The Apostle Paul, he's saying, I speak for Jesus. I reflect his power. I reflect his authority. And I've already handed down the sentence, which you should have done for yourselves as a church, instead of boasting in your arrogance. Look at verse 4. So when you are assembled... Now, notice that. The judgment is to be communal. This isn't just the pastors of the church doing something. Um, It's actually the whole church comes together. They are assembled. And he says, and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present in this institutional communal authority of the local church. Here is what you need to do. He's saying so that the temple of Jesus where the spirit dwells is not destroyed so that it remains sacred. Here's what you need to do. Verse five, hand this man over to Satan That's the communal action of the local church. But to what end? Two things. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Hand this man over to Satan. I just wonder what maybe some visitors who are here today might be thinking about a text like that, if you've never come across it before. What on on earth does that mean? I mean, it, it... it certainly doesn't sound very loving, does it? I mean, it sounds frightening. It sounds radical. They actually would say this in a, in, a, in a New Testament epistle Hand this man over to Satan. Whoever this man is, he had at one time professed faith in Jesus Christ. At one time, he claimed that Jesus died for him, he'd been baptized. He joined with the congregation in the Lord's Supper celebration. But somewhere along the line, he had failed to grasp how the theology of the cross not only constituted the basis of his salvation, but also, inevitably, how to live. He began having sexual intercourse with his stepmother, a sin that left even pagans aghast, but his local church did nothing about it. His brothers and sisters did nothing about it. In fact, in fact, the Corinthian church was proud. They failed him. They absolutely failed this man. The church's weird spirituality, their overrealized eschatology, it blinded them to their fallen brother's true condition and to their own. And now Paul's saying the church needs to repent of their disobedience and hand this man back to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And what's to be destroyed, I think, is the self-glorying, the self-satisfaction of this man who thinks he's operating on a higher spiritual plane. Lord willing, what will be destroyed is this stance of smug self-sufficiency. And Paul doesn't expect the Corinthian church to be scandalized by this command. It's so important to see that. We can kind of clutch our pearls and say, Well, hand him over to Satan. <laughs> he doesn't expect them to be scandalized by this one bit. This is what needs to be done. What must be done. Both for the man's own sake and for the sake of the whole church body. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And, and what this is, is the equivalent of what Paul says in verse 2. Put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. Or verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. Paul's telling the church, sever all Christian fellowship. Do not associate with him, verse 9. Do not even eat with him, verse 11. His membership is to be revoked. His passport is a kingdom citizen is to be confiscated. He is barred from the Lord's table. He is to be deliberately removed from the fellowship of God's people and placed into that realm controlled by the devil. And I hope we all find this shocking. This is a horrifying fate to contemplate because because he stopped repenting of sin. This person is no longer being treated as a brother or a sister in Christ by the local church. That's what's happened. And and the Corinthian church or New City Baptist church does this, not because we're a bunch of loveless, self-righteous, intolerant jerks. This is an act of corporate love towards an unrepentant sinner. We must see that. This is an act of corporate love towards an unrepentant sinner. What's the divine intention behind this action of love? That his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Lord willing, by being excommunicated, by being banished to the realm of Satan this sexually sinful man will realize that such false belief and activity is so displeasing to God that it separates him from God. He will see that his excommunication from the church is a living picture of separation from God and his people. That he is now, spiritually speaking, living in the South Pole. He's been kicked outside the camp in the dead of night, in the middle of winter, in the middle of a snowstorm, to face the hostile elements on his own with no protection. That's what this is a picture of. And if there is one ounce of grace left, he will repent before it's too late. He will see himself. As being delivered over to Satan, over to Jesus' adversary, separated from the fellowship of God's church, God's people, and he will be ashamed. He will be stricken with terror. He will see the seriousness of the church's judgment against him, a judgment the church has made in coordinated action with heaven itself in binding him to Satan. Matthew 18 18. This is a function of the keys being delivered to the church, and he will repent. That's the hope. This is always the hope of church discipline, that the person's spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And if you're a visitor with us today, you you may not know this, although Actually, Alex mentioned this in in his uh, leading of the service today, but this is something every member at New City Baptist has publicly stated that they desire to happen to them if they stop repenting of sin. It's in our membership covenant. We've actually all agreed to this. We, We say it publicly. We say this, I also understand that if I am overtaken in any fault, I will be subject to biblical discipline, which seeks my restoration. And in love, in love, the members of this church hold one another to that promise because we know the deceitfulness of sin. However, we need to be careful to have a biblically nuanced view of what church discipline actually is. Uh, we may be coming from a, a background A church background where the concept is unheard of. Uh, Perhaps the phrase itself, church discipline, sounds like an oxymoron. Like hot ice. Church discipline? No, 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 no. The church is all about grace and love and acceptance. There is no discipline of any sort because that would be judgmental. That would be intolerant. That's not correct. There are just too many biblical texts which contradict that understanding. Alex read some of them this morning. They're listed at the bottom of your bulletin. Or or, or perhaps we think of there being no church discipline until the crisis stage is reached, right? One of the members is caught in an extramarital affair, let's say. Then the church chucks them out, and that's church discipline, praise God. That's the thinking of many Christians. Basically, church discipline equals excommunication. That's that's the whole category. Church discipline equals excommunication. And so what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 5, removing a person from the official membership of the church because of unrepentant sin, that's the only, only, only kind of church discipline that there is. But that's not right either. There, There is a gradation of church discipline in the New Testament, and excommunication is the final, final stage. And our membership covenant, brothers and sisters, needs to be understood in that light. In the broadest sense, church discipline is everything, everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. We're all being disciplined right now as I preach. Uh, preaching, teaching, prayer, corporate worship, singing Christian songs together, uh, the godly oversight of pastors and elders, Christian discipleship—these are all forms of discipline. But it's formative discipline. Ah, hear that? it's formative discipline. What we're seeing here in First Corinthians chapter five—that's corrective discipline. So we can think of formative discipline as the stake in the ground that kind of helps the tree. Grow up straight. It's the extra set of wheels on the bicycle. It's the musician's endless hours of practice. The New Testament speaks about this formative type of discipline in countless passages about pursuing holiness, building one another up in the faith, passages like Ephesians 4, 11 to 32 Philippians 2 1 to 18 read through those texts that's all formative christian discipline which means a great deal of christian of church discipline problems they're actually dealt with within the regular church ministry regular church life truly that's that's where 99% of discipline in the church takes place 99% through teaching preaching prayer personal discipleship admonishing one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Through this, we learn the standards of biblical holiness. And because right doctrine leads to right living, we then exhibit those standards of biblical conduct. That's that's how it works. And because there is loving oversight... Because there is accountability within the membership of the local church, many, many problems are avoided in advance. Brothers and sisters, in the weekly life of this church, there are personal words of encouragement and guidance. There's mutual edification, mutual building one another up. There's intentional spiritual friendships. There's hospitality. And involved with all of that, there may also be personal words of rebuke and correction. That's not just Pastor John and Pastor Alex's job. That's also your job as a member of this church. You can't be so polite and so Canadian as to not actually to talk to a brother or sister about their sin to rebuke them, to correct them with love. Always aware of the, the log that's sticking out of your own eye. But that's a loving thing to do. We've actually covenanted to do this together. And, and moving up that graded scale, I think that we see laid out in Scripture, there is then the small-scale confrontation of a brother or sister's sin with witnesses. As you read in Matthew eighteen sixteen. And then moving farther along, this graded scale, if the brother or sister still refuses to listen, their sin is told to the church. And if at this point there is still no repentance, the last stage, the final stage, is excommunication. The person who refuses to repent of sin even when confronted by the entire church of which they are a member, is put outside the confessed fellowship of that local assembly and barred from participating in the Lord's Supper. Their passport as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, a passport conferred to them at the time that they were baptized and joined the membership of a local church, that's taken away. And they are handed over to Satan. And this is for the good of the person who is being disciplined. It's for their good. So that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Now we need to move on. But let me say this. We, we may be thinking, and, and Satan certainly wants us to be thinking, Pastor John, this stuff you're saying, this sort of approach, man, this is extreme. It is radical. It's unloving. It's very un-Canadian. And it might even be un-Baptist, you might say that. And it's detrimental to a person's soul. This kind of stuff, it's detrimental to their well-being. I believe... There is a better way. I believe that there's a more loving way of dealing with unrepentant sin in the church. Brother, sister, let me warn you guard your heart. Guard your heart. Uh, This is Jesus' church, this is his bride. And this is the God ordained last means of destroying the flesh of some of his true children who for a season have stopped repenting of sin, that their spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And the church, the local church, is to facilitate that divine design, not impede it, not overthrow it, not interject our own wisdom and loving, gushing heart. We don't impede this, overthrow this with our own human wisdom. Rest assured, think about this theologically. Jesus will not lose one of all whom the Father has given to him, but this is the corrective, this is the restorative process he has ordained for some of them. And we, and what we may think of as wise and loving. Even if our hearts only have the best intentions. If it contradicts scripture, then it's flagrant disobedience. It's prideful, it's not humble. Christian humility doesn't tell God what's best. It's for the church to listen to the scriptures and to obey. Now, be of good cheer. The next two points are much, much shorter. Uh, So we've heard Let me say one more thing, too. As you're thinking through, I mean, as you're thinking through joining this church or another church or where you might be in five years, 20 years down the road, let me encourage you, brother, sister, um, only become a member of a church that actually lovingly would practice church discipline. Actually ask for a bit of a track record on that. You know, I, I said this in Sunday school class before, but I wouldn't let my dog go to a church that doesn't have church discipline. It's not biblical. It's, it's not loving. Look at our second point. This is, he now gives his rationale. Church discipline is important for the health of the church as a whole. Evil in the church that no one deals with soon affects the entire Church, which means our union, with, our union with Jesus, isn't just a personal matter between me and God. That there's a corporate dimension to our faith. I've mentioned this many times, but it's it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, I guess. But I believe Christianity in Canada is far too individualistic. Churches in African nations are more corporate by culture and by custom. But Canadians have inherited this mixed model of, I think, American rugged individualism and British reserve. And and we see it played out in our lives all the time in how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Our expectations of church and of the Christian life altogether, they're they're very me-focused. right? How do I live? What do I get? How can I be served? How does this affect me? But the church of Jesus Christ is a living entity. One body with many body parts. We're going to see this when we come to chapter 12. And that's God's design. One body with many parts. And just as none of our physical body parts are scuttling around on their own, doing their own thing, concerned with their own welfare, so too are there no lone ranger Christians living out lives unconnected from other members of their local church. In covenant with those members. Brother, sister, your holy living affects your local church for the good. God's grace is working through you to be a blessing to all your brothers and sisters at New City. But unrepentant sin, and I believe this is unrepentant sin that the church knows about yet has not instituted any sort of disciplinary process against, so it's complicit in the sin, that is spiritual death. And it spreads through the body of Christ like gangrene, or like yeast through a batch of dough. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Your boasting is not good. He's telling them, your prideful, puffed-up, arrogant smugness is completely inappropriate in the present circumstances. You need to be mourning. You need to be grieving. You failed the incestuous man, and you've brought the entire church to the brink of spiritual death. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Which is just a very Jewish way of saying... Don't you know that one bad apple spoils the whole barrel? And note the switch in emphasis. In verses 3 to 5, the incestuous man must be expelled for his own good. Now, it's for the good of the church. Verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you, plural, may be A new unleavened batch, as you, plural, really are. A pure batch of dough with no corruption. That's what the church truly is. This comes back to regenerate church membership. Remember we talked about that? Because if a church doesn't act like what they are, the temple of God where his spirit dwells, then they aren't. Remember that famous line from the movie Forrest Gump? stupid is as stupid does. What does that mean? It means just calling a person stupid doesn't necessarily make it so. We know stupidity by a person's actions. And it's the same with the church. The church is as the church does. New City Baptist Church, we could have a we could have a cross on our steeple that's 500 feet high outside. We, we could have a budget in the millions with a staff of dozens. Our Sunday morning services we could that could be live streamed all over the world, all over the globe. But the proof, the proof of that eschatological reality that we are indeed the temple of God where His Spirit dwells, is in our corporate passion for purity, for holiness. That unrepentant decay is not tolerated. That there are no openly rotten apples in the barrel, which the church lovingly indulges in their putrefaction. There is purity, there is holiness, there is obedience. The church of Christ is a pure batch of dough. This is very important. It's not separate individual lumps that are good and separate individual lumps that are bad, the whole batch is new and unleavened. And so when someone is disfellowship from a Bible-believing church because of unrepentant sin, the church is acting like what they are. A church removing unrepentant sinners from the membership role is not something... A faithful church need be ashamed of. The church will grieve and mourn for that person's sin. They love that person, so they don't want that person to go to hell forever. The action itself is pleasing to God because He because it keeps His temple pure. Every church. Every true church, every biblical church, practices discipline. Why? Verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's Paul's rationale. And as always, as always, it comes back to the gospel. It comes back to what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For one week after the Passover lamb was sacrificed in Israel, every house in Israel was to be free from all yeast, from all leaven. All the bread they ate was unleavened, and Israelite could not have one speck of yeast in their home. And so Paul takes this as a picture of sin in the church. Jesus is now our Passover lamb. But in this case, the Passover celebration doesn't last just one week, right? It lasts an entire lifetime. And so the yeast of sin is to be put out permanently. The church is never to make peace with sin again she fights sin, she confesses sin, she flees from sin, and never, never, never do we boast in its presence. God forbid. We're never complicit in a member's sinfulness. Instead, brothers and sisters, we mourn over sin, we grieve over sin, their sin and our own. Beloved Jesus' atonement, his Passover sacrifice, was not intended to free us to sin, but to liberate us from sin. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the festival, This, this lifelong celebration of holy living and moral purity, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The old way of life that the Corinthians had indulged in before Jesus saved them, that must, must be replaced by the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There must be authentic Christian transparency and a new way of life in Jesus Christ. Anything less makes a local church's claim to be the holy temple of God where he dwells by his spirit. A travesty. It makes it a sham. It makes what God accomplished on Calvary's hill a sham. It's a fraud. It's all a fraud. Read verse 7 one more time. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Become what you are. That's what he's saying. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let me relate to you a quick story from another pastor's experience. He writes this. A friend of mine quite a number of years ago, who has now gone to be with the Lord, was pastoring a church in the outback of Australia. It was a small town. There was a Baptist church, but it was really the only church in town. A lot of people went, maybe 200 people on a Sunday morning. He went there as a young man and found that he couldn't control the situation. It was allegedly a Baptist church, superficially confessionally correct and sound, but he wasn't there long before he found that in this rough, tough, outback situation, the leading people on his board were either crooked in business or sleeping around or harsh and cruel at home. He tried to preach the word for 18 months and bring discipline But because the leaders in the community and in the church were one and the same, discipline just couldn't be exerted. There wasn't anything he could do. He was only a young man in his late 20s. He was lonely, single, and far away from the nearest fellowship. After 18 months, he began to cry to God daily with tears. The heart of his prayer was, Lord God, this is far beyond me. I can't cope with this. Either remove me, put me in a job, in some place for the size of my ability, or you clean up the church. God, you know I've tried, but I can't do it. You clean up the church or take me out. He prayed like that in earnestness and brokenness for three months. And in the next three months... He had 16 funerals, all leading men in the church. And the next year, he baptized 200. Brothers and sisters, we're not playing games here. Christ died to make his bride holy. We just don't take the word of God seriously enough. Our third point, a misunderstanding corrected, verses 9 through 13. In this last section, Paul is clarifying an apparent misunderstanding or possibly even a deliberate misrepresentation of a previous letter that he'd written to the Corinthian church. It's a letter we no longer possess. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. So to be clear, this command to discipline and to exclude from our fellowship those who indulge in unrepentant sin has nothing to do with disciplining the outside world. Our jurisdiction does not extend that far, New City. Verse 12, isn't it my responsibility It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. No, what Paul has in mind, what what he's been talking about for the entire chapter, is discipline within the church of God. Those people that the church recognizes as being Christians, and they have formally become members of that church. Verse 11, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral. And notice that Paul's understanding of what conduct should be subject to church discipline isn't restricted to the sexual arena alone. Look at 11b. Or greedy. An idolater or slanderer. A drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. That means no intimate social gatherings again not because the church is mean and intolerant and unloving this person being handed over to satan that the flesh might be destroyed and their soul saved and that the church remains pure an unleavened batch of dough a new batch of dough that all that kind of stuff that that has to trump brothers and sisters that has to trump our own personal feelings on this in light of this, polite social niceties fall by the wayside. The stakes are too high. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. And once a person is disfellowship for unrepentant sin, the only reason there would be any sort of social contact with that former member would be to talk to them about the gospel and their need to repent. It has to be that serious. We're not inviting them out over for dinner and a movie just to hang out. We don't invite them to church, to the church camping trip, or to the church Christmas party. That's not the point. You know, that, that undermines the whole process. If, yeah, you're under church discipline, you've been excommunicated, but everything's still the same between you and me. No. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's not the church's responsibility to judge outsiders in the sense, in the sense of censuring their behavior and undertaking to change them through discipline. No, the church's disciplinary jurisdiction is restricted to its own membership. Verse 13, God will judge those outside. As one commentator writes, their fate will be bad enough that Christians ought not to add to their agony, but seek instead to lead them to Jesus Christ. God will judge those outside. And then, quoting numerous passages from the Old Testament, expel the wicked person from among you. Now, I'm going to end things here, and this may sound like an abrupt Strange way to close a sermon. But let me put a question to every member of New City Baptist Church this morning. Brother, sister, do you love God? Do you fear God? Do you tremble at his word? Do you love his church? Every true Christian would say yes. Then it must follow that we will obey what the Lord's apostle has written to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. May God give us grace, new city, for as long as God grants this local assembly should exist, that not one of her members would ever say, I could never judge a brother or sister like that. May the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of God's word, make what God has accomplished in the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb, worshipfully clear in our minds this day. That we are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in our midst. Amen. Let's pray.